0: Section 44 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 33, Charles IX and the Religious Wars, 1560 to 1574, Part 10 we might multiply indefinitely these anecdotal scenes of the massacre, most of them brutally ferocious, others painfully pathetic, some generous and calculated to preserve the credit of humanity amidst one of its most direful aberrations. History must show no pity for the vices and crimes of men, whether princes or people, and it is her duty as well as her right to depict them so truthfully that men's souls and imaginations may be sufficiently impressed by them to conceive disgust and horror at them but it is not by dwelling upon them and by describing them minutely as if she had to exhibit a gallery of monsters and madmen that history can lead men's minds to sound judgments and salutary impressions it is necessary to have moral sense and good sense always in view and set high above great social troubles just as sailors to struggle courageously against the tempest need to see a luminous corner where the sky is visible and a star which reveals to them the port we take no pleasure and we see no use in setting forth in detail the works of evil we should be inclined to fear that by familiarity with such a spectacle men would lose the perception of good and cease to put hope in its legitimate and ultimate superiority nor will we pause either to discuss the secondary questions which meet us at the period of which we are telling the story for example the question whether charles the ninth fired with his own hand on his protestant subjects whom he had delivered over to the evil passions of the aristocracy and of the populace or whether the balcony from which he is said to have indulged in this ferocious pastime existed at that time in the sixteenth century at the palace of the louvre and overlooking the seine these questions are not without historic interest and it is well for learned men to study them but we consider them incapable of being resolved with certainty and even were they resolved they would not give the key to the character of charles the ninth and to the portion which appertains to him in the deed of cruelty with which his name remains connected the great historic fact of the Saint Bartholomew is what we confine ourselves to, and we have attempted to depict it accurately as regards Charles the Ninth's hesitations and equally feverish resolutions, his intermixture of open-heartedness and double-dealing in his treatment of Coligny, towards whom he felt himself drawn without quite understanding him, and his puerile weakness in presence of his mother, whom he feared far more than he trusted when he had plunged into the orgies of the massacre when after having said kill them all he had seen the slaughter of his companions in his royal amusements teligny and la rochefoucauld charles the ninth abandoned himself to a fit of mad passion he was asked whether the two young huguenot princes henry of navarre and henry de conde were to be killed also marshal de retz had been in favour of it marshal de tavannes had been opposed to it and it was decided to spare them on the very night of the st Bartholomew the king sent for them both quote, i mean for the future said he to have but one religion in my kingdom the mass or death make your choice End quote. henry of Navarre reminded the king of his promises and asked for time to consider henry de conde answered that he would remain firm in the true religion though he should have to give up his life for it End quote. Quote, Seditious madman, rebel, and son of a rebel, said Charles, if within three days you do not change your language, I will have you strangled." End quote. At this first juncture, the king saved from the massacre none but his surgeon, Ambrose Parre, and his nurse, both Huguenot. On the very night after the murder of Coligny, he sent for Ambrose Parre into his chamber, and made him go into his wardrobe, says Brantome, quote, Ordering him not to stir and saying that it was not reasonable that one who was able to be of service to a whole little world should be thus massacred end quote. a few days afterwards, quote, now said the king to Parre, You really must be a Catholic end quote. Quote, by God's light, answered Parre, I think you must surely remember, sir, to have promised me in order that I might never disobey you, never on the other hand to bid me do four things, find my way back into my mother's womb. "'catch myself fighting in a battle, leave your service, or go to mass.' After a moment's silence, Charles rejoined, "'Ambrose, I don't know what has come over me for the last two or three days, "'but I feel my mind and my body greatly excited, in fact just as if I had a fever. "'Me seems every moment just as much waking as sleeping "'that those massacred corpses keep appearing to me "'with their faces all hideous and covered with blood. "'I wish the helpless and the innocent had not been included.' and in consequence of the reply made to him adds sully in his economie royale page two forty four in the petitot collection he next day issued his orders prohibiting on pain of death any slaying or plundering the which were nevertheless very ill observed the animosities and fury of the populace being too much inflamed to defer to them The historians, Catholic or Protestant, contemporary or researchful, differ widely as to the number of the victims in this cruel massacre. According to de Tou, there were about 2,000 persons killed in Paris the first day. Daubing says 3,000. Brantome speaks of 4,000 bodies that Charles the Ninth might have seen floating down the Seine. La Popelinière reduces them to 1,000 there is to be found in the account-books of the city of paris a payment to the grave-diggers of the cemetery of the innocents for having interred eleven hundred dead bodies stranded at the turns of the seine near chaillot hauteuil and st Cloud. it is probable that many corpses were carried still farther and the corpses were not all thrown into the river the uncertainty is still greater when one comes to speak of the number of victims throughout the whole of france de tou estimates it at 30000 sully at 70000 perifix archbishop of paris in the 17th century raises it to 100000 papirius masson and de villa reduce it to 10000 without clearly distinguishing between the massacre of paris and those of the provinces other historians fix upon 40000 Great uncertainty also prevails as to the execution of the orders issued from Paris to the governors at the provinces. The names of the Viscomte d'Ordre, governor of Bayonne, and of John Le Enuyer, bishop of Lisieux, have become famous from their having refused to take part in the massacre. But the authenticity of the letter from the Viscomte d'Ord to Charles the Ninth is disputed, though the fact of his resistance appears certain and as for the bishop john le ennuyer m de formville seems to us to have demonstrated in his histoire de l'ancien évêque comte de lisieux, pages two ninety nine to three fourteen quote that there was no occasion to save the protestants of lisieux in fifteen seventy two because they did not find themselves in any danger of being massacred and that the merit of it cannot be attributed to anybody to the bishop le ennuyer any more than to captain fumichon governor of the town it was only the general course of events and the discretion of the municipal officers of Lisieux that did it all one thing which is quite true and which is good to call to mind in the midst of so great a general criminality is that at many spots in france it met with a refusal to be associated in it president genet at dijon the count de tande in provence philibert de l'eguiche at macon tanguy le venard de Carrouge at rouen the count de gordes indophini and many other chiefs military or civil openly repudiated the example set by the murderers of paris and the municipal body of nantes a very catholic town took upon this subject as has been proved from authentic documents by m Verigot, pastor of the reformed church at nantes a resolution which does honor to its patriotic firmness as well as to its christian loyalty a great good man, a great functionary, and a great scholar, in disgrace for six years past, the Chancellor Michael de l'Hospital received about this time in his retreat at Vigniers, a visit from a great philosopher, Michael de Montaigne, anxious, said the visitor, to come and testify to you the honour and reverence with which I regard your competence, and the special qualities which are in you, for as to the extraneous and the fortuitous, it is not to my taste to put them down in the account, montaigne chose a happy moment for disregarding all but the personal and special qualities of the chancellor shortly after his departure l'hospital was warned that some sinister-looking horsemen were coming and that he would do well to take care of himself no matter no matter he answered it will be as god pleases when my hour has come next day he was told that those men were approaching his house and he was asked whether he would not have the gates shut against them and have them fired upon in case they attempted to force an entrance no said he if the small gate will not do for them to enter by let the big one be opened a few hours afterwards l'hospital was informed that the king and the queen-mother were sending other horsemen to protect him i didn't know said the old man that i had deserved either death or pardon a rumor of his death flew abroad amongst his enemies who rejoiced at it Quote, we are told, wrote Cardinal Granvelle to his agent at Brussels, October 8, 1572, that the King has had Chancellor de l'Hospital and his wife dispatched, which would be a great blessing. The agent, more enlightened than his chief, denied the fact, adding, quote, They are a fine bit of rubbish left, l'Hospital and his wife. End quote. Charles IX wrote to his old adviser to reassure him, quote, Loving you as I do. End quote. Some time after, however, he demanded of him his resignation of the title of Chancellor, wishing to confer it upon La Birague to reward him for his cooperation in the St. Bartholomew. L'Hospital gave in his resignation on the 1st of February, 1573, and died six weeks afterwards, on the 18th of March. I am just at the end of my long journey, and shall have no more business but with God, he wrote to the King and the Queen Mother. Quote, I implore him to give you his grace, and to lead you with his hand in all your affairs, and in the government of this great and beautiful kingdom, which he hath committed to your keeping, with all gentleness and clemency towards your good subjects, in imitation of himself, who is good, and patient in bearing our burdens, and prompt to forgive you and pardon you everything. End quote. From the 24th to the 31st of August, 1572, the bearing and conduct of Charles the Ninth and the Queen Mother produced nothing but a confused mass of orders and counter-orders, affirmations and denials, words and actions incoherent and contradictory, all caused by a habit of lying and the desire of escaping from the peril or embarrassment of the moment on the very first day of the massacre about midday the provost of tradesmen and the sheriffs who had not taken part in the paris matins came complaining to the king of the pillage sack and murder which were being committed by many belonging to the suite of his majesty as well as to those of the princes princesses and lords of the court by noblemen archers and soldiers of the guard as well as by all sorts of gentry and people mixed with them and under their wing Charles ordered them, quote, to get on horseback, take with them all the forces in the city, and keep their eyes open day and night to put a stop to the said murder, pillage, and sedition arising, he said, because of the rivalry between the houses of Guise and Chatillon, and because they of Guise had been threatened by the admiral's friends, who suspected them of being at the bottom of the hurt inflicted upon him, end quote he the same day addressed to the governors of the provinces a letter in which he invested the disturbance with the same character and gave the same explanation of it the guises complained violently at being thus disavowed by the king who had the face to throw upon them alone the odium of the massacre which he had ordered Next day, August 25, the king wrote to all his agents, at home and abroad, another letter, affirming that, quote, what had happened at Paris had been done solely to prevent the execution of an accursed conspiracy which the admiral and his allies had concocted against him, his mother and his brothers, quote. and on the 26th of August he went with his two brothers to hold in state a bed of justice, and make to the Parliament the same declaration against Coligny and his party. He could not, he said, have parried so fearful a blow, but by another very violent one, and he wished all the world to know that what had happened at Paris had been done not only with his consent, but by his express command. Whereupon it was enjoined upon the court, says de Tou, to cause investigations to be made as to the conspiracy of Coligny, and to decree what it should consider proper, conformably with the laws and with justice. The next day but one, August 28, appeared a royal manifesto running, quote, The king willeth and intendeth that all noblemen and others whosoever of the religion, styled reformed, be empowered to live and abide in all security and liberty, with their wives, children, and families, in their houses, as they have heretofore done, and were empowered to do, by the benefit of the edicts of pacification and nevertheless for to obviate the troubles scandals suspicion and distrust which might arise by reason of the services and assemblies that might take place both in the houses of the said noblemen and elsewhere as is permitted by the aforesaid edicts of pacification his majesty doth lay very express inhibitions and prohibitions upon all the said noblemen and others of the said religion against holding assemblies on any account whatsoever until that by the said lord the king after having provided for the tranquillity of his kingdom, it be otherwise ordained, and that on pain of confiscation of body and goods in case of disobedience. These tardy and lying accusations officially brought against Coligny and his friends. These promises of liberty and security for the Protestants renewed in the terms of the edicts of pacification, and in point of fact annulled at the very moment at which they were being renewed the massacre continuing here and there in france at one time with the secret connivance and at another notwithstanding the publicly given word of the king and the queen mother all this policy at one and the same time violent and timorous incoherent and stubborn produced amongst the protestants two contrary effects some grew frightened others angry at court under the direct influence of the king and his surroundings submission to the powers that be prevailed many fled others without abjuring their religion abjured their party the two reformer princes henry of navarre and henry de conde attended mass on the twenty ninth of september and on the third of october wrote to the pope deploring their errors and giving hopes of their conversion Far away from Paris, in the mountains of the Pyrenees and of Languedoc, in the towns where the reformers were numerous and confident, at Sancerre, at Montauban, at Nîmes, at La Rochelle, the spirit of resistance carried the day. An assembly, meeting at Milau, drew up a provisional ordinance for the government of the reformed church, quote, until it please God, who has the hearts of kings in his keeping, to change that of King Charles the Ninth, and restore the state of France to good order, or to raise up such neighboring prince as is manifestly marked out by his virtue and by distinguishing signs for to be the liberator of this poor afflicted people in november fifteen seventy two the fourth religious war broke out the siege of la rochelle was its only important event charles the ninth and his counsellors exerted themselves in vain to avoid it there was everything to disquiet them in this enterprise so sudden a revival of the religious war after the grand blow they had just struck the passionate energy manifested by the protestants in asylum at la rochelle and the help they had been led to hope for from queen elizabeth whom england would never have forgiven for indifference in this cause marshal de biron who was known to favor the reformers was appointed governor of la rochelle but he could not succeed in gaining admittance within the walls even alone and for the purpose of parleying with the inhabitants the king heard that one of the bravest protestant chiefs lanoux iron arm had retired to mons with prince louis of nassau the duke of longueville his old enemy induced him to go to paris the king received him with great favor gave up to him the property of teligny whose sister lanoux had married and pressed him to go to la rochelle and prevail upon the inhabitants to keep the peace lanoux refused saying that he was not at all fitted for this commission the king promised that he would ask nothing of him which could wound his honor lanoux at last consented and repaired about the end of november fifteen seventy two to a village close by la rochelle whither it was arranged that deputies from the town would come and confer with him and they came in fact but at their first meeting quote, we are come they said to confer with m de lanoux but we do not see him here lanoux got angry Quote, I am astonished, he said, that you have so soon forgotten one who has received so many wounds and lost an arm fighting for you. End quote. Quote, yes, there is a M. de Lanoux, who was one of us, and who bravely defended our cause, but he never flattered us with vain hopes. He never invited us to conferences to betray us. Lanoux got more fiercely angry. Quote, All I ask of you is to report to the Senate what I have to say to them. End quote they complied and came back with permission for him to enter the town the people looked at him as he passed with a mixture of distrust and interest after hearing him the senate rejected the pacific overtures made to them by we have no mind to treat specially and for ourselves alone our cause is that of god and of all the churches of france we will accept nothing but what shall seem proper to all our brethren for yourself we give you your choice between three propositions remain in our town as a simple burgess and we will give you quarters if you like better to be our commandant all the nobility and the people will gladly have you for their head and will fight with confidence under your orders if neither of these propositions suits you you shall be welcome to go aboard one of our vessels and cross over to england where you will find many of your friends lanoux did not hesitate he became under the authority of the mayor jacques henri the military head of la rochelle whither charles the ninth had sent him to make peace the king authorized him to accept this singular position lanoux conducted himself so honorably in it and everybody was so convinced of his good faith as well as bravery that for three months he commanded inside la rochelle and superintended the preparations for defense all the while trying to make the chances of peace prevail at the end of february fifteen seventy three he recognized the impossibility of his double commission and he went away from la rochelle leaving the place in better condition than that in which he had found it without either king or rachelese considering that they had any right to complain of him